In this week's In-Ear Insights, let's talk about data, specifically who owns your data and who's using your data. We've had a couple of interesting things happen recently. One, we've had one client who uh, wants to do a specific kind of tracking on their website, and Google Analytics 4 simply cannot do it. You would have to make some significant modifications to the code of your website to accommodate GA4, as opposed to making the tool work for you. That's one aspect. Second aspect, ChatGPT recently announced its ChatGPT Enterprise Edition, which we're pretty sure is going to be reassuringly expensive. And the promise there is that your data will not be used by OpenAI to train their models. This goes in tandem with a huge number of lawsuits and questions and things going on about who's, who owns the data that these, these models are being trained on. That also goes with questions we've had in our Slack groups, like our Analytics for Marketers Slack group, uh, which you can get to at trustinsights.ai slash analytics for marketers. Someone asking, hey, I have some interest in you know, a custom model for this. And our first question is, do you have the data? Because if you don't have the data, you can't tune a model. And you probably don't want to be you know, making part of the secret sauce of your business based on data that you don't own, that you didn't put into the model yourself. So all of this to say that right now companies are at an inflection point. If they, if you don't own your data, or at least a, a good portion of it, you may be at risk not only from just not being able to do basic things like analytics tracking, but may not be able to take advantage, say, of generative AI to its fullest capacity. So Katie, where should where should the decision makers be thinking about data ownership where should where should where should their heads be that is an excellent question uh as i'm sort of i'm running through different scenarios in my head that's sort of where the pause is coming from because i'm thinking about things like cdps i'm thinking about things like uh even as simple as google analytics if you can't export all of your data about your digital assets, then you don't actually own that data. And so it's it's tricky because not every company has the resources to build their own systems in order to collect that data. It's just it's not scalable. It doesn't make sense. That's why there's such, you know, a deep bench in the in the Martech world and of software systems that do this for you. But I would say one of the first things I would look at when evaluating a tool that collects my data is how do I get the data out of it? Or is it something that I can't get the data out of? I think of LinkedIn as a really good example. And so, you know, I can post six times a day, every mm -hmm. single day. And is that technically my data? Well, it's my work. It's my action. It's the things that I have done, but I'm doing it on their platform. And therefore, my work is their data. It's not my data. It's data around my actions, but they still own it. And I don't have a right to try to extract that data from them if they don't want me to. And that's sort of where we need to be thinking about, you know, if we want to be doing deeper, more focused analysis on customer behaviors, on you know, potential sales and revenue models and all those things. Like, how do we get that data? And that's what I start thinking about. So when you're asking the question to go back, you know, what do decision makers need to be thinking about? It's that. It's 
what am I going to need to do the data? Why am I collecting the data in the first place? Why do I even care about this data point? I may not know what I'm going to do with it down the line, but I should be aware that it exists and how I can access it. And I think that question of who owns your data really is is at the the crux of it. If you are, you know, you are the CEO of Trust Insights, we have a lot of data on a lot of different systems. You know, who owns that data? Do we own it? Does OpenAI own it? Does Google own it? And for the things that we want to do uh, as a company strategically, what do we need to own that we currently do not own? LinkedIn, like you said, is a great example. Um, even our analytics. So we run the Matomo um, operate, uh, analytics system, which is an open source version of web analytics. It's not as fully featured or as capable as Google Analytics, but we own it. It's on our servers. Um, we have access to the backend database, to the raw data itself. So that if we wanted to, we could build models and things from it, which you, you can't do nearly as easily with a system like Google Analytics. And, you know, I think that there's, Again, it's sort of the you can't build everything yourself. You know, we're even Google relies on third party tools, probably like a CRM system, a marketing automation system. I'm just I'm making assumptions. But so, you know, even they don't wholly own all of their data. Um, and so it really comes down to thinking through like the basically the prioritization what data do you absolutely have to have? So revenue data, for example, you probably want to own that data. And so, yes, you can use a third-party system like a QuickBooks or some other accounting tool, but you need to be able to work with that system to extract all of it in order to understand what's going on with your business. So that's data that you need to be able to own. Do I need to own all of my social media data? Well, that's not the kind of business that we operate so for us, it's not as essential. But if we ran a social media agency, that's probably a higher priority. For us, you know, thinking about things like Google Analytics, we had, I don't know that we had an easier time uh, extracting data from Universal Analytics, but I think it wasn't as riddled with issues as it is with Google Analytics 4 and their, you know, data API where the data is different. And that's a question we get a lot is why is my data different in the system versus when it's in Looker Studio versus, you know, when I extract it through the API. That, those are considerations when you think about, do I need to own this data? Do I need to have it all the time? What am I going to do with it? You made, uh, you raised a really interesting point, particularly around social media data. And this goes into the way uh, generative AI functions and AI models in general. One of the considerations that decision makers need to think about in terms of who owns your data is also then who has access to your data. So if you are using a social media marketing tool and they say, hey, we've got generative AI that's custom trained to help you write better social posts, right? That model was trained on something. If you are using, I'm going to make up a name, you're using, you know, uh, Spam Social. Um, and Spam Social has its own custom trained model. And Spam Social is training on everyone who's using the system. Then by default, it's training on your data, which means that you are also, by extension, giving your competitors access to 
a, a derivative of your data. So if you write really great you know, social media posts and you use spam social to, to post them on LinkedIn and you get great numbers on it, if spam social is using that data to train its language model um, to, to customize it and you have a, comp a direct competitor also using spam social, you are helping your competitor write better social content based on your data. A little bit tangential, but it strikes me that every once in a while, like every few months or so, I'll start to see uh, Facebook posts where, you know, users, members will have these long posts of, I do not give Facebook authority to use my pictures, to use my thing, copy and paste, blah, blah, blah. And it always hurts my heart a little bit. One, because there's no convincing them that that's not how it works. But two, uh, when they signed on to the platform and did not read the terms of use, they already gave up those rights to their own data. And, you know, saying like, it's like the old Michael Scott, I declare bankruptcy. Well, that's not how that works. You can't just declare it and all of your money troubles go away. There's a lot that goes into it. And when you're on a social media platform, just by being on there, you've already given up a lot of your data. You don't own that data. That platform, you know, even though they say we're not going to sell your data, we're not going to, there's a lot of loopholes and legal language with that. And so it's the, you know, it's the same with any system with a CRM, you know, let's, you know, say, you know, Salesforce, for example, your data may be behind a password, but it lives on their servers. And they may be using your data to train large language models. Exactly. And so the question is then, and, and you know, your loophole example is exactly right. Facebook may not sell your data, mm -hmm. um, but they train a model based on your data and then they sell access to that model and they let competitors use that model. And this is not even just for language models. This is for classical AI and machine learning as well. Mm -hmm. uh, selling access to that model takes essentially the important part of your data, the part that says this is what works and sells access to that. And so I think for, for decision makers, for you know the CEOs of the world who are, who are looking at the AI space, these are considerations that you've got to take into account. Who owns your data? Who has access to your data? And who is giving derivatives of your data to your competitors? Well, and this is where, Chris, you've talked about the cautions with using tools like chat gpt and putting certain kinds of data in there so people are asking you know any and all kinds of questions of these tools you know you know here's my sales forecast for the last year what can i do better well guess what they have that data now um you know here's my list of customers who else you know what what does the profile look like well guess what they have that data now and it's going to continue to use that data to, you know, build recommendations for other people, including your competitors. And so the solution there, and it's not an easy solution, is to build and train your own large language model. Um, but again, that goes back to that's not a reasonable thing for a lot of companies. They don't have the resources. They don't have the infrastructure to build their own CRM, to build their own web tracking tool, to build their own you know, large language model trained only solely on their data. Um, you know, there has to be 
versions of that based on where what kind of industry you work in so healthcare for example it's you kind of have to they're forced into it so there needs to be a, a roadmap for the healthcare industry there needs to be a roadmap for the financial or the legal industry but for b2b marketing we shouldn't be dealing with PII in the first place. So we're probably lower on the list of industries that are going to have access to our own tools. I mean, we do, though, if you think about it, if you go into HubSpot and you or your marketing automation system of choice, it's swimming in PII, right? You have people's names and job titles, their email addresses, their phone numbers and stuff. Mm -hmm. You have stuff, you have, you have enough data in there that you, you know, if it leaks, you would have an identity theft problem. Um, and that's that's sort of the, the the standard is if it leaks, could someone compromise someone else's identity with it? Uh, and as marketers, we don't think about that, but it's a hundred percent true. We do. So, I actually got a question very recently about this about accounting. How how do you set up systems to use language models in the accounting world, uh, given that regulations are changing so often, and also the sensitivity of the data? And there's there's sort of two approaches. To, to language models in general. One is the perfect memory model. Hey, this model is going to get trained on everything. It's going to know everything. We ask it questions, it gives us answers. That's a very um, sort of older approach to these systems now that um, is still effective, but it contains a lot of problems. And the newer model, the newer approach is the hybrid model where you use the language model to do what it does best, which is language, and you connect it to your data sources so that it's not you're not asking it for knowledge. You're just asking it to to write language that can interface with other systems. So in the accounting example, you would have a database that you own um, that is, contains all your accounting regulations, contains your customer data, maybe. And then you have some code glue that glues it to a language model. So you ask the language model questions. It goes and queries the database. The database returns answers. and The language model converts those answers back into into regular language the the model does not know information in the database the model just knows how to speak and that sort of is the the architecture that a lot of companies are now taking because for one thing it allows you to pull the model out and put another model in so if, as new models come, come about you can swap in out easier and two it creates those firewalls that allow you to say okay yeah model you're we're not going to give you this information. You, you know, you you just have to interpret the results, and that's that allows you to run a language model locally on your servers, one of the open source models. They don't have to know everything at that point. They just have to be able to interpret language well, and so that protects your company and protects your data because now your model's running on your servers, your database is running on your servers, and at no point are you handing this very sensitive information to a third party that may or may not be trustworthy. So you've mentioned a couple of things that I don't believe are accessible to everyone. So one is, you know, having the skill set to stand up a large language model that can have, you know, interchangeable, you know, training models. That to me strikes me as a skill set that not, you know, that account manager or you know, a, an analyst might have, but you would need a data scientist. So that's problem number one. Problem number two is you're mentioning your servers. How many companies do you know, not talking about like enterprise size companies, um, but like, you know, companies similar to ours have their own servers or even know where to start to stand those up? Because even those technically belong to someone else. 
they're our servers, but we have to get the equipment from somewhere. We have to get the server space from somewhere. And so I'm not trying to say that it's not possible. I'm just trying to understand how it's accessible. And, and that's a good question. So it depends. Um, it depends on the sophistication of the company. and Because most companies do have their own servers, even if they don't know it, right? If you have a website, mm -hmm. you have a server somewhere. Um, and the data protection on those typically is higher of a higher standard uh, because that's straight up IT. That's not even marketing anymore. That's just straight up IT. It's right. like this server is governed by these things. Um, one of our one of the Trust Insight services sitting on a shelf over there. It's this little box that I have plugged in. So, uh, and that's where I do a lot of experimental stuff because I, I got this thing on Amazon's Black Friday sale last year. Um, is it production ready? I would not put that into production like as a for a client because it's, you know, the cat could knock it off. Uh, but yeah, for companies that have these problems like healthcare companies, like finance companies, they already have either agreements with cloud hosting providers like Azure, you know, uh, Microsoft Azure or Google Cloud or whatever that have very strong data protections because they have to. Um, or they have, you know, if they're a legacy company, they probably have a room full of hardware somewhere that, you know, with, with all the air conditioning and stuff. So the companies do have these resources, but this is where, again, this goes back to the to, to CEO level stuff, not just marketing stuff. Mm -hmm. You've got an IT department. You've probably got a CIO at a, if you're a larger company. And this is where you need to have governance and integration across your company so that what marketing wants to do with data has to has to be integrated with what IT says you can and can't do, has to be integrated with what legal says you can and can't do. And, and all those departments have to work together. And so your job as the CEO is to, to make everyone work together. Easier said than done. Um, but I think that that's a really good point because I don't think that there was that initial realization of how cross-discipline this kind of, you know, new technology really was going to be. So, you know, if we look at Google Analytics, for example, installing Google Analytics might involve your IT department, you know, to get permission to include it on the website. It might include legal to read over, you know, the terms of use and the data retention policies and say yes or no or tweak them. But then once all that is done, those two teams are essentially not needed to run Google Analytics anymore. You need your marketing team, you need your data team. But in this instance, when we're talking about something like generative AI, legal and IT can't disengage from the process. They need to be true partners with marketing and data and sales and everyone else. And so in some ways, it's really an opportunity to introduce that collaboration. When I worked uh, at the company that I often refer to uh, a million years ago, that was a big problem because IT, we had the server room, my desk was near it. We had the server room, you open the door, you hear the whoosh of all the air conditioners and the servers running, you know, it's dark, you see the lights, it's very like gothy and emo. And so you see everything. And our IT person was very, OC like, all of the cables were perfectly aligned and like very actually very aesthetically pleasing to look at. But God forbid you ask this person to sit in the same room as development or sit in the same room of pretty much anybody 
and you knew that you had to like eat your Wheaties that morning and make sure you had six cups of coffee because the gloves were going to come off because the IT person definitely didn't feel like anybody else understood how data worked and just didn't want anybody touching it. Like, just don't touch it. You're not, just don't, I don't even want to talk about it. No, don't ask me anything. Just don't touch it. And it was a very contentious conversation. And so we had a lot of opportunities for collaboration, but there were so many personality clashes. I mean, you know, to be fair, it wasn't just this person who was sticky. Every other team felt the same way about the work that they did. It was a very siloed company, even for only being about 50 people. And the collaboration was nearly impossible because nobody was willing to understand why somebody else should know what they were doing. And so a lot of companies, I think, are going to be facing this cultural challenge right now of their teams have been conditioned to be so siloed to think that their thing is the most important thing that when you ask them to share their toys in the sandbox, they're going to start hand slapping. It's not going to happen. They're just going to say, no, you can't, you can't come into my area. You don't need to know what I do. That's not your business. And so when they're trying to introduce technology like generative AI that requires that collaboration, I'm just seeing a whole lot of headache. And that, Chris, to your question, that's where the CEO has to start. The CEO has to say, how am I going to get all of these really strong personalities to sit in the same room together and not, you know, end up as an MMA match? The answer to that, and this is kind of a management consulting trope, is you introduce something like generative AI or digital transformation or business process reengineering or Six Sigma or something. It, there's some initiative that has mm -hmm. a banner and a flag. Maybe there's signs up in the office, you know, <laughs> classic office space stuff. Um, Although you're not kidding, like a literal banner and a flag to wave. Like it, I've it, been exactly, there, done that. Exactly. But you do that because that gives everyone a purpose. And with generative AI, because it's so new, people don't have uh, you know, a, a grudge to fight on the generative AI stuff itself, right? Everyone's like, okay, well, the CEO said to do this, so we got to do this. Um, and it can create, it can, it, if it's done well, you can start to create those collaborative links between organizations that then have a halo effect. You know, hey, the, the folks in IT, are starting to actually talk to the folks in marketing you know, in a non-adversarial non way on specific project. And if you can help create those relationships within the organization, then that, again, that can spill over into other areas where it's no longer as contentious, you know, for, for IT and, and marketing say, well, by the way, you know, our CRM is still kind of a mess. We, we still need some help with this. So it's, it's a good excuse if it's managed well, it's a good excuse to, to, to knock down some of those silos, at least a little bit, at least, you know, they, they built some planks, catwalks between the silos. Um, because going back to the original question of who owns your data, yeah, in a, in a large organization, especially your data ownership is shared across all these different silos. You, even if, even in the ideal situation, your company has different internal owners of data. And to your point, they can be very, very protective of that. I appreciate how naive and optimistic you are when it comes to people management. Like what you're <laughs> describing. Well, you know, you're not wrong. Like 
introducing an initiative that's new and everybody can get behind is a good way to approach it. But it's not as simple as that, which is why a lot of times companies will bring in a neutral third party, not just to introduce the initiative, but almost to just referee the initiative. Because it's not that the people internally can't manage the situation. It's that there's it tends to be very emotionally charged, even though it's business, you know, people take these things very personally. And so bringing in a neutral third party like Trust Insights, for example, is a really great way to let them be the bad guy, let them referee the conversations and introduce the initiatives that, yes, you are capable of handling, but it takes you out of the conversation as, you know, oh, well, you know, you gave sales, you know, 30 more seconds of airtime than you did marketing, you know, when talking about what they own. So they must be more important than marketing. Let the third party consultant take that heat. Let, you know, for example, like if I were to go into a company, you know, my job would be basically to mediate the conversation and make sure that things are being talked about in a productive manager. So when people get angry when people get frustrated the heat's not on the ceo the heat's on me as the third party who's coming in to you know basically turn their world upside down let me be the person who sort of takes that uh on their shoulders so that you the ceo still remain the figurehead the person pushing this forward the leader that everybody needs to look to. So basically my job as a third party is to make you look really fantastic. And I have to take, you know, all of the, you know, bad feelings and curses and insults, <laughs> but that's fine because then you add a zero to the, you know, agreement and everybody's happy at the end of the day. Everyone's happy at the end of the day, <laughs> but also those exercises <laughs> allow you to understand, to get a better understanding of who owns your data. Um, right. Because, when we do those kinds of explorations within companies, we often find out that there are significant data ownership problems. One of the ones that comes to mind is we worked with a biotech company that had th three separate independent non-managed uh, instances of Salesforce. They were paying for Salesforce.com three times. Um, their leads and their opportunities were scattered across these three systems. They had different scoring systems. They had different opportunity stages. And when we rationalized that, um, it basically they had lost because of these, these discontinuities. They'd lost track of a billion and a half dollars in pipeline because no one could find it. it was in, you know if it was in one system and the person was looking for it there, but no, it was actually in the other system. <clears throat> this is a case where the data ownership wasn't necessarily in question because the company owns the data they put in the Salesforce, but they had no idea who owned the data internally, and so when they rationalized it finally, they're like, "Oh, <laughs> whoops." <laughs> And, you know, and that is a big part of these exercises is to your point, Chris, is using them as an excuse to get these people together to talk about who owns the data. So, for example, you know, if we go back to the Google Analytics instance, you may find that there is a difference of opinion between IT development and marketing of who owns the Google Analytics data. IT might say, well, you've put it on my servers, my website. Developers might say, well, I had to actually do the work to implement it. And marketing might say, but I'm the one who needs to use it. And so everyone in that instance is right. However, it needs to be more collaborative than that. So there are opportunities to 
find collaboration collaborative paths but it absolutely needs to be if you're introducing something new like generative ai that needs to be your first order of business is understanding what that governance looks like because there's so many ways that it could go wrong and very often does very often does so to summarize you need to know who owns your data internally and externally, where it lives. If you want to be able to use it for generative AI, if you want to be able to use it for any new initiative where you have opportunity, but you also have risk. Uh, so you want to de-risk yourself. You want to de-risk your projects. You want to ensure that uh, you can make use of the technologies. Before you even start talking about which system and architecture, you need to know, hey, who owns this stuff uh, internally? Because if you don't, it's going to get really, really hard to to make a project successful and comprehensive. And the bigger your company is, the more of a pain it's going to be. If you have comments or questions or projects you've done, just try, try and figure out who owns your data and you want to share some thoughts or ask some questions, go to our free Slack group. Go to trustinsights.ai slash analytics for marketers, where you and over 3,500 other marketers are asking and answering each other's questions every single day. And wherever it is you watch or listen to the show, if there's a channel you'd rather have it on instead, go to trustinsights.ai slash TI podcast. We can find the show on most channels. And while you're there, on the channel of your choice, please leave us a rating and a review. It does help to share the show. Thanks for tuning in. And we'll talk to you next time.